This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you powerful redemption stories of Americans who face crisis in their lives and how they're able to get through it. We've previously brought you energy entrepreneur Tim Dunn's story of losing his two-year-old granddaughter Mariah and how he dealt with that unthinkable tragedy. And today, Tim brings us an even more personal story about a crisis of his own creation. Because of a massive failure that I had like 20 years ago now, and I was in a deep, deep, dark valley looking for answers. You know, when you're in a deep valley, one of the main reasons you want to know is why did this happen? What is this about? How could a loving God let me go through this? You know, and now to some extent, it's not that different than when the child's in the crib at nine o'clock and you're still up and they want to know, how could you make me do this? (laughs) Okay. But that's hard to think that way when you're in a deep, dark valley, right? So I had a basically, I guess, a failure in business. And it it was a failure in a sense. It wasn't an economic failure. It was more of a Um, I didn't get my way failure. And in the course of that, things were said. And, you know, usually when you get criticized, you just brush it off. And and it was a criticism, really, I'd had many times. Uh, Basically, the criticism boiled down to you're arrogant and you stomp on people. So, interestingly enough, these days, when they look for CEOs, one of the characteristics they look for is arrogance as a positive thing. Okay, now I understand why that is, because when you're arrogant, you think you know everything and it actually does pave the way for you to say, I know I can get that done and just go get it done. The arrogance is actually a byproduct of the tendency to just go get stuff done. And the arrogance develops because you kind of consider everybody else doesn't know what they're doing because you know how to get stuff done. Okay, so. It's not actually the arrogance they're after, I don't think. it's the, That's a, a sign that you're a get-it-done person. And, and that's what I am. I'm really good at getting things done. But this time it's stuck. And, you know, I'm a, very, I'm a very devout believer, and I take very seriously the, you know, love your neighbors yourself command. So because I had to face, well, okay, I get stuff done, but am I actually loving my neighbor? And I had to really think about that and come to the point of saying, no, you know, I am, I'm getting stuff done, but I'm not seeking their best interest. I'm seeking mine and coming to grips with that reality. So the circumstances didn't matter at the end of the day. It was this internal realization that was the source of the pain. And there's a scene in C.S. Lewis's book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where a boy turns into a dragon and this boy is a really rotten kid. I mean, he's a, everybody can't stand him. He's spoiled. He's a spoiled brat. He turns into a dragon, which is like a physical manifestation of being a spoiled brat, right? Dragons are all about themselves. And in the course of that, he kind of discovers that, well, gosh, you know, being helpful to other people is actually a better deal. And then comes a time where the ship's about to leave. He's going to be left. And Aslan, the cross figure, who's a form of a lion, comes to him and says, hey, do you want to be a boy again? And yeah, because he starts to scratch his dragon flesh off. And then the Aslan figure comes 
and says, you can't get all that off yourself. I got to get it. And takes his claws and just rips him apart. And Eustace is the boy's name. He comes out like a new person. Well, that's what it felt like to me. I went through two years of depression. And I never went, I never had diagnosed and stuff, but I had some people tell me on retrospect that the reason why you were sleepy in the afternoon, the reason why you lost your emotional fire, you were actually depressed. I was depressed because I was coming to grips with who I am. And I came to understand that, you know, when when the Galatians 5 says the spirit's lust against the flesh and the flesh lusts against the spirit, and these two are at enemies with one another. There's actually three people in a boxing ring inside of me going to war, you know, two, two warring factions and a referee, and I'm the referee deciding who wins each bout. And I had always looked at it like there's two. There's me and there's the spirit. I'm always negotiating with the spirit of, you know, how, how much do I have to do to make you okay? But really, my old self, you know, was the part that was negotiating that. And, and I would judge myself as okay as compared to other people, which made me a Pharisee, you know. And, and actually having to say, no, I'm not this person. And Romans 7 says, there's nothing good dwelling me in my flesh, you know. And saying, that thing, that thing I've historically thought of myself, it's rotten and bad and it's never going to get any better. And actually, it was, it was a death. I had to separate from myself from that and say, I'm actually a different thing than that thing. I'm actually the referee in the ring, and I'm choosing on an ongoing basis which to follow. So I still have all the, you know, horrific thoughts and everything else. That thing's still there. I try to think of it like that movie, The Beautiful Mind, where the guy has the three, you know, and, and he just ignores them. Mm-hmm. They're always there, but he ignore. I try to make that like, oh, yeah, I, I know those thoughts came from you, but I don't have to do anything up for that. So that was this massive failure that I have. And during that time, I went to Job. Because of the story of Job, it gave me hope. My very being is largely shaped by Job. I I think of him as like my best friend. And when we come back, we'll continue with Tim Dunn's story, walking away from that old self And, of course, making choices to help create a better version of himself. And Tim struggles. Well, these are all of our struggles. Tim, a devout Christian, using the Bible as his source, and so many Americans do. And even if you don't, so much to learn here from this story. When we come back, more of Tim Dunn's story. And, by the way, his book, Yellow Balloons, well, you can get it at timdunn.org. That's timdunn.org. It's a terrific read and will help any family getting through tough circumstances and any person trying to overcome some obstacles of their own, especially the self-created kind. Tim Dunn's story continues here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Tim Dunn's story. He's an energy entrepreneur who's telling us, of all things, the story of Job and how it helped shape and correct his own walk in life. Here's the story of Job. So Job is an ancient billionaire. He's got trucking interests, you know, camels, thousand camels, so that's like a trucking line. He's a trading company, you know, because that's what they use camels for. They were on caravan. So he's probably a banker, too, because if you've been trade, you're banking. He's a banking conglomerate. He's got these massive farming interests. He's got an enormous number of donkeys, so he's, let's call it the cab. He's Uber, you know, he's got the Uber service. Uh, so he's an ancient billionaire. And the greatest man of the East, the Bible calls him. And he also had this giant family, which is also a huge blessing back in those days. And he's a super devout guy. He, he's the guy that everybody calls for advice when the city council meets, which back in those days they met in the gates. And then Job says, he says, he used to always call me in the gates. So Job is the man. That's the hero. He's, he's introduced to us. Then the next scene goes to heaven. Now, interestingly enough, in heaven are two characters, God and Satan. So Satan's running around, and God sees him. He says, hey, hey, Satan. God calls Satan over. And he says, yeah, what? He says, have you seen Job, my servant Job? Satan says, yeah, what of it? He said, well, you know, he makes you look so bad. You know, you were supposed to be like that, and you were so full of yourself that I fired you. Well, that's what you were supposed to look like. You're losing. You're losing. I took a, a lowly guy that was so much inferior to you, and he's making you look so bad. You are, I'm dissing you right here, okay? You're a failure. So, you know, that, that's trash talk, right? And Satan comes back and he says, wow, that look, 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 look. This, this isn't making me look bad. This guy is just a shrewd businessman, okay? He knows how to deal with you as a transaction, okay? He gives you what you want, you give him what he wants. What's so righteous about that? I mean, you, you pay good. He understands you pay good, you got good goodies, you get what you want. There's nothing righteous about this. If you let me ruin him, you'd see. So God says, okay, I tell you what, I'm, and, and he, this is an important part too. Satan says, well, you, you won't let me touch him, you put a wall around him, okay? So, you, you give me this protection, you got all this stuff, you know, uh, no, no, no wonder. So he says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll take the wall down. You can go do whatever you're going to do. Just don't touch his person. So Satan, you can kind of hear Satan, yeah, you know, I got, I got, I'm, this, watch this, what's, what's going to happen. So Satan goes down and he orchestrates for every business to go bankrupt all on the same day. They all go down and all the kids die. The only one's left the wife. And then one employee from each business is left to come and tell him the news. He gets it all at once. So there's no question that's supernatural, right? He wants to make sure Job gets the point, right? And here's what Job does. The Bible says he worships. And so he says, look, I was naked when I was born. I'm naked again. If I can't accept bad from the Lord, then I don't really believe in God. So blessed be the name of the Lord. Pretty amazing. So now you go to scene two in heaven. So now Satan's back again. Once again, God sees Satan and God says, hey, Satan, come over here. 
You know that trash talk you had before? You're losing again, okay? See, see what he did? He worshiped me. He, you are so losing at this point in time. You are Donsky. And Satan says, ah, well, what, what? And by the way, Satan is actually a job title. It means accuser. His real name's Lucifer. He goes by. So he says, well, yeah, but look, you wouldn't let me touch him. Everybody give whatever they have for their skin, you know, their health. Just let me touch him. Then you see what happens. And God says something real interesting right there that you have to, you have to grab onto to really get this story. He says, have you seen Job's reaction and how righteous he is, although you incited me to ruin him without cause? So God didn't do one thing negative to Job, but he authorized it. He opened the gate. He unlocked the door. And God takes responsibility for it. You can't lose that, okay? Hang on to that because we're going to have to ask the question, why would a loving God let that happen, right? You can't answer that question. You don't understand this story. Okay, so then Satan goes down and Job has his skin cancer, you know, and he's, he's sitting there scraping everything off. And now his wife comes and we find out why his wife didn't die. And she says, why do you still keep your integrity? Just curse God and die. Nice, nice uh, little uh, cherry on the top there, yeah. And so Job turns to his wife and, you know, he's in pain. He's had all this loss. And he says to his wife, this is the most unbelievable part of the whole story, I think. He says, you speak as a foolish woman. He, he doesn't. He won't even. He won't even say anything negative reaction to his wife. At, at the, even in the darkest depths, you speak like a fool. You're better than this, honey. You you don't want to say things that are wrong like this. You know we're not going to accept things from God. You don't speak like a foolish person. You're not a foolish person. Unbelievable. This guy. I mean, he's he's ringing all the bells. He's such an amazing guy. So. Then Job's three friends show up. Now, it's pretty, pretty common to say these friends are not friends. Baloney. Look, these guys come from a long distance. They sit with Job for seven days without saying a single word. Would you do that? Would you care? Would you do? I wouldn't do that. In the ancient Near East, it was like the custom that the aggrieved speaks first. They sit there seven days. And finally, Job starts talking. And then most of the rest of the book is this dialogue. Okay, and it amounts to this. The three friends say, look, Job, you, you, you had everything, right? You must have done something wrong. God would not have done this to you if you hadn't done something wrong. You just got to repent. And then God will give you everything back. It's, just, it's, it's pretty plain. It's pretty simple. You, you didn't have enough faith. You, you, you made a mistake, you sinned, something's wrong. Just make it right, and God will put it back. Because God, God's not unjust. And If you didn't do something wrong, it would be unjust for God to do this. Some version of that. And Job's response is always the same. He says, I'm a man of integrity. If I were to admit I did something that I didn't do, that would be like just taking a plea just to get something from God. I'm not going to do that. If I knew something, I'd do it, okay? But I don't have anything. I'm, I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do just for some benefit. I actually don't think that speaks well of God. 
Okay? So they're having this debate. Now, at the end of the book, God tells us his thought about this. The head of the three friends is a guy named Eliphaz. And God says this at the end. He says to Job, I'm really ticked at Eliphaz and his two friends because they did not speak well of me like you did. Now, that's very interesting. And Eliphaz and his two friends, God doesn't get mad at them because of what they said about Job. He's mad at them because of what they said about him. And you can read what Eliphaz and his two friends says. You know, God is almighty and God is righteous. And God, it all sounds great. But here was their fundamental belief about God. If you do what God wants, you will get back what you want. Okay. Now, does that sound like anybody else in the story? It's exactly the same view that Satan claimed. Okay. Now, Eliphaz and his two friends, I don't doubt that these guys are believing because they did not speak well of me like you did. And everything. Lots of us have wrong views about God. But here's the overriding message. Now, that's very interesting. And Eliphaz of Job, God is not a cosmic vending machine. He's not transactional, okay? There is no price for the things on the shelf that you want. And it's good. It's good that that's the case because we don't know what we want as well as God does. And what great storytelling about a character that almost everybody in the world's heard of a whole bunch of people believe in, and lots more have written about. And when we come back, we continue with Tim Dunn, the story of Job, and in the end, the story of a character that helped shape and straighten Tim Dunn's walk and so many others around America and around the world. Tim Dunn's story of Job, his own story here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Tim Dunn's remarkable telling of the story of Job. And this happened right here in our studio in Oxford, Mississippi. We're about an hour south of Memphis, and Tim had come in to tell the story of the loss of his granddaughter. And of course, one thing led to another, and Tim was soon telling the story of his own personal demons and of the story of this great biblical character that everybody knows. Let's continue where we last left off. Job asked for an audience. He says, you know, if I could explain to God what he's missing here, okay, 
if I could explain to God how he should look at these things, then this wouldn't be happening to me. God's righteous. He's powerful. He can do whatever he wants to. I accept it completely, but he's missing something. And if I had my day in court, I would explain myself and all this would go away. Now, interestingly enough, God does not blame Job one bit for that. But now the story concludes and he gets his day in court. And God actually appears to him, he says, in a whirlwind. Now, you'd think at this point, I mean, Job doesn't know God's bragging on him up in heaven, right? He's in the moment. He just knows his life is falling apart. (laughs) So now God shows up. You'd think at this point he would at least say, hey, you're doing awesome. No, no, he doesn't. He says, listen, you asked for your day in court. You got it. And you can ask me all the questions you want, but I'm going first. So listen, how about, where were you when I made the universe? Do, tell me what's in the blueprint. Okay, tell, just tell me how, like, the reproductive system, how did you design that, for example, you know? Uh, how about rain, like the water cycle? How do, how do all these planets, like, hang in the space? And he just goes into all this physics of the universe, and uh, Job says, man, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't I ask. I open my mouth. I'm not finished, God says, okay? Let me ask you about these two, just two simple beasts, two brutes, you know? behemoth and leviathan okay can you tame them can you capture them no i didn't think so okay you wouldn't want to mess with them right they're just dumb beasts that i made okay if you can't even tame dumb beasts why would you think you could tame me i made all of them right so that doesn't really make any sense does it and so job says two things he says i realize i'm vile now i realize i'm vile now think about this Job was the most righteous guy in the whole earth. God pronounced him righteous. But he realized his vile. You know, another way to translate that Hebrew word, small. And what he realizes is, I'm not near what I thought I was because I was comparing myself to all these other people. I'm the greatest of all men. But this is God. Okay, And that's number one. And the other thing he says, now that I see you, I just repent. I didn't really know who he were. And what Job realizes is God's not a transactional God. He's not far away. God is close. So I saw that and I realized, oh, I'm vile. That's what I'm going through. I realize I am this jerk, you know, that stomps on people for my own good. And I'm not really seeking the best interests of others. Now, it's fine to stomp on people when they need to be stomped on, right? You got to fire somebody for the good of the company, that's okay. But that's also for their good. It's not just because you can. It's because it's not good to enable somebody to do something that's bad. But in my case, I was doing it for me. That's a fundamental problem. So, okay, I can identify with Job. I'm vile. That's the fundamental thing I was wrestling with. But then he does this thing of, I see you, and now I know you. I thought I knew you, but now I really know who you are. And that's when God says, okay, all done. All right, trial over. Let's give the guy double everything just to make sure everybody that's watching this understands how great a guy I think this is. This is the best guy ever. So then I grappled with two big questions. One is, well, why would a loving God allow this to happen to Job? And that question wasn't that hard. It seemed pretty clear. Job got to know God. 
And so, obviously, knowing God is one of the greatest rewards of this life. Okay, so, okay, that's pretty easy. But then the really hard question, I grappled with this for a long time, was why does it have to be this way? Why not just let us live a really comfortable life, go to heaven, go to Knowing God 101, have God tell of all this stuff. He probably has a great funny monologue and then a great story. And then, you know, uh, why not learn that way? And a couple of verses kind of popped out at me. One is Ephesians 3.10, and it says, The manifold wisdom of God is revealed by the church to a group of beings. And you'd think it'd be, well, revealed to believers or unbelievers or something like that. Here's what it says. The manifold wisdom of God is revealed by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, the angels, the demons. They're watching. There's a verse in 1 Peter that says, the angels are longing to understand. They're stooping down, craning their necks, trying to understand what it is we're getting to understand. And you say, well, wait a minute. So they're understanding God by watching us. We're, we haven't even been here this long. I mean, you got eons of history before human race started with the angels. and They're in the presence of God. Job started off with Satan in heaven, right? They see him firsthand. They interact with him firsthand. They haven't just been through knowing God 101. They've been through PhD. So why is it that all these eons of time, they're watching us to understand about God? How can that be? And here's what dawned on me. They can't know God by faith. They can't. Because you can't have faith in what you see. That's not faith. That's sight. Faith is believing something you can't see. And 1 Corinthians says, there's three great things, faith, hope, and love. And only one will remain. Love. And why is that? Because when we get to the other side in the new earth, we will have and we will see. You can't hope for what you have. You can't hope for a Christmas present in you know, New Year's because you already have it. You just opened it, right? You can't believe in something that you see. So faith and hope are going to be gone. And there's something about knowing God by faith and through hope that is so spectacular that the angels are trying to understand and can't. So here's what I came to. The reason why God let his favorite guy be ruined, which he took responsibility for. The reason he did that is because Job is such a great guy that God didn't want him to miss out on one speck of opportunity to know him by faith. And when he did, he would be way better off. Now, what we don't know is how could that be better off for Job's kids? Because God doesn't tell us their stories. I know that I'm going through this story with Mariah, I'm better off. But I can't explain how Mariah is. If knowing God by faith is such a big deal, why would a two-year-old passing that quickly be good for Mariah? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But God doesn't tell us everybody else's stories. He tells us our story. 
And thanks to Tim Dunn for that storytelling, sharing his own life, the tragedy that befell his family, and how it brought the family closer together. That was the loss of his granddaughter, Mariah. And then, of course, his own, well, his own shortcomings and all the pain he caused all by himself. His own creation, the kind that we all, we all can do in our lives and bring to our lives. Tim Dunn's story, Job's story, here on Our American Stories. And send your stories, your favorite character in a book that led you to a different path. It could be the Bible, it could be, well, whatever. Send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Share it with us. We'll put it right back up on the air and let everybody hear it. Again, Tim Dunn's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories, and we love telling stories about songs. And that brings us to a story of a song segment. And we've done dozens of them. Go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org and take a listen to them. They're just terrific. In 2016, Guardian writer Malcolm Jack wrote this about the Talking Head song, Once in a Lifetime. Quote, It is a thing of dizzying power, beauty, and mystery. It sounds like nothing else in the history of pop. Musician Travis Morrison selected Once in a Lifetime as a perfect song, saying, quote, The lyrics are astounding. They are meaningless and totally meaningful at the same time. That's as good as rock lyrics get. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of a song. In 1973, two Rhode Island art students, David Byrne and Chris France, formed a band named The Artistics. Here's David Byrne. I was in a band with Chris, the drummer, for a while. And we sort of drifted into New York and, and then thought we'd have a, a serious try at a band. Unable to find another band member in New York, they convinced Chris's girlfriend and future wife, Tina Weymouth, to learn how to play the bass guitar and enlisted her into the band. With David on guitar and vocals and Chris on drums, the three played their first show as the Talking Heads in 1975, opening for the Ramones at CBGB's, the epicenter of New York punk rock. In late 76, Sire Records founder Seymour Stein stumbled onto one of their shows. Here's Seymour Stein. Um, I went down at CB's, and I'm standing out there, and all of a sudden I hear, when my love stands next to your love you know and i said what is this this music was so hypnotic i was being sucked into the room then i ran up after they were over they had no crew they had nothing and i i helped tina this beautiful young girl you know take the the, the stuff off the stage i said you have to be on my label after adding a fourth member to the band they recorded 77 the band's first album. The critics loved it, but it didn't do well commercially. Stein thought that this was due to their association with punk. Here's Chris France. Punk had bad connotations 
So I tried to come up with a different phrase than punk, and because New York had been rather dormant in the years before all this action started taking place on the Bowery, um, I, I called it the new wave. During a tour in London in 1977, the Talking Heads met Brian Eno, who would go on to produce their next three albums. Eno's production resulted in tighter and funkier songs. One such song included an eyebrow-raising cover of Al Green's Take Me to the River, which became their first top 30 hit in the U.S. Then, in October 1980, the Talking Heads released their fourth and most popular studio album, Remain in Light. Their ability to mix punk ideas with funk and world music along with their general weirdness and unique social commentary was unparalleled. And despite how strange their music was at times, they were able to create pop hooks that turned into earworms that stuck in your head for days. The one song that best pulls all this together is Once in a Lifetime. Inspired by Afrobeat legend Fela Kuti, the band drew inspiration from their song I Zimbra off their first album, Fear of Music. With that funky foundation, they came up with a number of concepts and songs during their jam sessions. One of their unfinished grooves, working titled Right Start, would become the groundwork for Once in a Lifetime. The music is a different variation from the final piece, but you can hear Tina Weymouth's bass riff which is the heart of Once in a Lifetime in it, clear as day. Weymouth says the bass line was conceived by her husband and drummer, Chris France, during one of their jam sessions. I went up and I picked up the bass and you were, you were yelling in your corner and I couldn't quite hear what you were saying, but you were yelling something at me and, uh, and I thought you were saying, ba-dum, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> and you, as soon as I started doing that, you said, that's more like it. After weeks of jamming, David Byrne and producer Brian Eno came into the studio to start adding arrangements and lyrics to the musical pieces. However, when Eno approached the piece, he started counting it differently than the band. Here's Brian Eno. I immediately misheard it, and I still mishear it to this day. And I, I always think the one of the bar is in a different place from, from them. This created a kind of dissonance and syncopation with his phrasing, and Eno leaned into it. He'd encourage one musician to hear it his way, while he'd let another hear it the band's way. This misheard counting became a key part of the song. It makes the music feel off-kilter and strange. But the same thing that gives a song its musical strength also makes it difficult to write to. Eno nearly scrapped the track entirely, but Byrne insisted that he could find lyrics that would work. 
Burns' determination eventually led to a breakthrough for Eno, who wrote the classic call-in-response chorus melody. Here's David Byrne and Brian Eno. Brian Eno had an idea for a vocal melody for the chorus, and he sang it as both of us were doing at the time. We would, if we had an idea for a melody, we would just sing nonsense syllables. Like that. So I had some sense of the melody and the syllabic content of of that thing. The way I always write my own songs, actually, I always start from syllables and rhythms and what sort of vowel sounds I'd like there to be. The band listened to Byrne's lyrics and thought it sounded like a preacher speaking to his congregation. So Byrne channeled this in his lyrics and delivery. Here's Byrne. For the, this last record, I got a lot of ideas from listening to evangelists on the radio here. He employed the common device preachers use of repeating the same phrase at the beginning of each sentence. Burns' repetition of the phrases, you may find yourself, or you may ask yourself, were, as Burns says, straight lifts from a radio preacher he was listening to. I get myself worked up, pacing back and forth, breathing in sync with the preacher. Phrases would come into my head, and I'd jot them down as quickly as possible. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well... How did I get here? Letting the days go by, All these factors stitched together created a trans-like state of routine existence. Here's Byrne. We're largely unconscious. We, you know, we operate half awake or on, on autopilot and end up, whatever, with a house and family and job and everything else, and we haven't really stopped to ask ourselves, how did I get here? Once in a Lifetime was released on February 2nd, 1981, just six months before MTV first hit airwaves. With limited music videos to choose from, Once in a Lifetime became a staple for the channel in its early years. And this play helped the song gain some much-deserved recognition that would later become imitation by the likes of television shows like The Simpsons. Kent Brockman, everybody! And you may ask yourself, How do I work this? And you may ask yourself, Where is that large... And Tom Hanks. And you may find yourself without a beautiful house, without a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, Well, how did I get here? Kermit the Frog. And even a guy who had an incredible amount of time on his hands and crafted a video cover of Once in a Lifetime by sampling President Trump's own words. You may ask yourself, what is that beautiful house? You may ask yourself, where does that highway go to? You may ask yourself, am I right? Am I wrong? And you may say to yourself, my God, what have I done? 
Today, Once in a Lifetime is known as one of the finest works of this legendary band. The song is the symphonic embodiment of all that the Talking Heads were. It's cutting edge, it's strange, and it's utterly brilliant. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. This is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you the stories of our men and women in uniform. And now Jesse brings us the story of a nonprofit organization that puts guitars into the hands of war veterans. Thousands of war veterans are afflicted with PTSD. More soldiers have committed suicide since the Vietnam War and have died in actual battle. 22 veterans commit suicide every day, but a lot of them are finding some hope by playing the guitar. It's pretty simple. It's a program called Guitars for Vets and it helps provide the guitars and free lessons. Guitar. Check this out. Alpha Delta Echo. And E for Echo. We're a, a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We were started 10 years ago, and we give guitar lessons to veterans. And we have found over the course of the 10 years that if you have problems, if, you, if you're having issues coping, or if, if life just becomes stressful, playing the guitar helps. Teachers donate their time, and uh, companies donate the uh, guitars and you know tuners and whatever, what have you, and. Uh, it's good therapy, if nothing else. It's good therapy for uh, post-traumatic stress, for therapy for anything that ails you. I don't know how many of you are musicians or how many of you play, but those that do will understand what I'm talking about when I say you can pick up a guitar and start playing, and the next thing you know, two hours is gone. And it's like, where did that go? Well, you're at peace for those two hours. You're having a good time. Your mind quiets down, and things just become okay. And this is how it helps veterans with PTSD. It helps quiet them down and it helps them feel good about themselves and have a positive experience. Started coming to the VA. I come here for about 10 years and then I found out about the recreation program and that they offer guitar lessons. So I took them, I took the 10, 10 lessons. I think it's one of the best things I did. It's very good for me. The guitar helps you even if all you're doing is plucking the strings. It helps bring out whatever it is emotionally that you're trying to relax out of you. For me, I enjoy the company myself. It's a very good group of guys. I mean, I mean, these guys, these guys know what they're doing. Some of our better instructors have been minimalist guitar players. They may be the first position chords or whatever, but they're so good teaching people, and they, they, 
you, they can guide people through it and they can make them feel like it's a success. The program is supposed to be a positive learning experience for everybody. So you don't want to make anybody feel like they failed or they're not keeping up with the program. It's just supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be fun. And the, that's really what you need from an instructor is the ability to communicate that and be patient and empathetic with what the veterans are going through. It's a difficult thing for to find an instructor who has the flexibility to teach somebody who, have, who doesn't have any vision and figure out a way to show me how to play a guitar. And I will say it was a, uh, it was a good experience for both of us. It made him a better teacher and it also made me a better student. He was trying to teach me how to finger pick. So I enjoyed it. I could listen to him all day, just finger pick on the music, so it's good. Are you a pretty good finger picker now? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. And, but I still try. When I'm home, I try. It seems to me that the, the, the instrument tells you what type of music you're going to play. So I ended up, when I was taking piano lessons and playing piano, I would play love songs. I thought it would be the same that my guitar I would learn how to play love songs on the guitar, but that's not true. The guitar said, you're going to play the blues. So I ended up playing the blues with the guitar. It just helps you calm down and de-stress, and it is, it's the best de-stressor I know of, and believe me, I, I, I use it at home all the time, but I would say You've got nothing to lose by doing it. It's, it's just, it's, it's a great program, and, and we know it helps. We know it can help you. So, you know, all non-judgmental. Come in and enjoy. Now, Guitars for Vets has fulfilled over 25,000 lessons and distributed over 2,500 guitars for free to military veterans. If you want to help out by donating $200, you can send one veteran through the program. That's guitarsforvets.org, and this is Our American Stories. And again, that's guitarsforvets.org. And by the way, this could just be something that you should think about for yourself or your family, uh, an instrument, playing it, what it can do for you. That's why we spend so much time on music here on this show, and we spend a lot of time on vets. Jesse's really good at bringing disparate things that we care about together. I know another program that's uh, dealing with equestrians for vets up in Memphis. My little girl does that and teaches vets how to ride, gets them at peace. And that's what we're all looking for in the end is that inner peace. It's half of why we do this show here on Our American Stories. No screaming, no yelling. We've heard from so many of you uh, the thanks that you get for our tone, for the way we carry ourselves. Uh, and in this day and age, it's just hard to come across things that put you at peace and so thanks again Jesse for finding this pick up a guitar one day go get an old used piano just start playing it just start strumming it just start tickling the keyboards I like to do nothing better at my home this is our American stories guitar for vets and by the way this shows what so many people here do with their free time in this country and as they give of their time it's not always their money they can give but my goodness, we can give up our time. GuitarsForVets.org, their story, these soldiers' stories who've been helped and healed 
by this ministry, and it is a ministry, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories. And one of the most important things we talk about here on this show is the power of forgiveness. Rob Corbin began giving speeches on forgiveness after losing his father in 2008. His powerful testimony was delivered to the congregation at Temple Beth Shalom in Sun City, Arizona. It has often been said that the biggest battles fought are not those on the battlefield. They are fought within ourselves. And when you don't forgive, you are living in the past with the weight of yesterday on your shoulders. And it prevents you from being 100% in the present. I, uh, I know that feeling well because I too lived emotionally in the past for 46 years. I call it living in an emotional cage. The pain isn't always felt, but it's always present. And as long as it is present, we will continue to be prisoners of the past fighting, fighting a battle that each one of us deserves to be free from. On a religious sense, certainly God has an everlasting tear in his eye because he gave us, every human being, whoever lived and is alive today, the ability to leave the emotional cage of the past and to be emotionally free now and forever. But as the rabbi said a couple of weeks ago, and I was listening with an open ear, God won't do for us what he gave us the ability to do for ourselves. Is there an act so heinous, so cruel, so harmful, so life-changing that we can justify crossing the line, drawing a line, and determining This is unforgivable. If the severity of the harm done could justify not forgiving, Nelson Mandela would certainly be towards the front of the line 
Mandela was allowed one visitor a year for 30 minutes. No written correspondence in or out, no library, no resources. He was treated like a dog. Four years after Mandela was released from prison, he became the president of South Africa. And Nelson Mandela invited on his list of guests all of the jailers that treated him so harshly, so cruel, were all invited to come to his inauguration. And they all came. And they asked Mr. Mandela, Mr. Mandela, why? Why did you invite all these people that treated you so harshly, so cruel? They barely fed you, and they tortured you. Why did you invite them to your inauguration? And here's what he said. He said, because resentment is like drinking poison, thinking it's going to kill our enemies, but it only hurts us. Senator John McCain, who recently passed away, spent five and a half years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Two of those years were in solitary confinement. He was not given proper medical treatment. They treated him very harshly. He was repeatedly beaten and tortured. Shortly before John McCain passed away, if you looked on television, you couldn't help but see some of the excerpts of some of the things that John McCain said in interviews before his death. And one of the things that John McCain said is that he has no regrets. John McCain said, I consider myself to be one of the most fortunate men who ever lived. And I'm one of the luckiest men alive. John McCain looked within to determine his feelings. And he let himself out of the emotional cage a long time ago. It's not what happens to us that determines if we carry the weight of yesterday on our shoulders. It's what we decide to feel in our hearts that will define if we live with peace and contentment in our lives or not. Detective Stephen McDonald, when he was 27 years old, as a detective, he was called to go to Central Park in New York and investigate some bicycle robberies. He saw three men who looked suspicious. When he approached the men and began a conversation, he looked down at one of the bicycles and was shot three times in the back and became a quadriplegic for the rest of his life. Six months after he was shot, his daughter was born. And he said at that moment, he said, you know what? He said, I need to be really thankful that God gave me the ability to be a father.
Everyone in this room has the power that these people have. It is a gift from God to us to be able to repair ourselves emotionally. But God won't do for us what he gave us the ability to do for ourselves. Forgiving is not forgetting. It is remembering what happened, but free from the pain of the past. Forgiving is not condoning the actions of others or in any way diminishing what happened. Here's another thing about forgiving. It doesn't require acceptance by anyone. When we forgive someone, they are free to reject our forgiveness. But the act of forgiveness is complete once you have forgiven. There's no going back. It requires no response. It requires no acknowledgement. And here's the math. It takes two to hurt, but just one to forgive. So when you forgive, expect nothing in return. Because you're doing this for you. So that you can get what you need and what you deserve. And that is to be emotionally free. Forgiving should not be an attempt by us to correct someone who insists that they did nothing wrong. And here's a question. Think about this one. Is it better to be right or is it better to be content with a free heart? Free to accept all of the joy that life can bring us. Forgiving has nothing to do with the validity of their actions. Forgiving is not letting them off the hook or giving them a free pass. Forgiving is giving us a free pass to move forward, past the harm and the pain. And i got to tell you something else. Forgiving others is only part of it. We also have to forgive ourselves. I have uh, some spiritual judgment that I'm going to share with you about remorse and regret and shame. I know for me why God gave me the ability to feel shame and remorse and regret. It was never intended for any of us to own these feelings for the rest of our lives. God never intended that. God intended for us to own these feelings only long enough to learn from and move forward. And when we come back, we continue with Rob Corbin and his powerful speech about forgiveness after losing his dad in 2008. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to the testimony of forgiveness as given by Rob Corbin before the congregation at Temple Beth Shalom in Sun City, Arizona. My father and I had a difficult relationship for 46 years. And for 46 years, I lived in my own emotional cage. I never forgave my father for the hurt that I endured as a child. For 46 years, I could have forgiven my father, but I chose not to. And then one day, on a Saturday morning, I got a call from my stepmother informing me that my father had taken his own life that morning, and he was gone. I had 46 years to make it right, and now there was no more time to say what I needed to say but I forgave him. I learned some things that day. I learned some life lessons that day that I want to share with you. One of the lessons that I learned that day is that there is no certainty that what can be done today can be done tomorrow. Because tomorrow is a mystery not only to God, Time waits for no one. The other lesson that I learned is that when we judge someone and we base our feelings around that judgment, we don't always know all the facts. People who hurt us don't always share their deep pain. They don't always ask for help. I never knew that my father suffered from depression for the past 15 years of his life and was seeing a psychiatrist and was sinking deeper and deeper into a darkness that he could no longer fight. I never knew my father had medical problems, including COPD, that struggled, made him struggle to breathe at night. I never knew my father had been diagnosed with stage one of Alzheimer's a month before he took his life. My father chose not to share his pain and his battle with me. Had he done so, perhaps, I would have forgiven him a long time ago, seeing him in so much pain. I tell my story not to gain sympathy or pity, but as a reminder to all of us that there is often a bigger picture than what we see. And we should never wait for tomorrow to do what we can do today. Some of you in this room, like me, may have some unspoken words that you needed to say to someone in your life who is no longer here. I have a message for you. The message came to me two weeks after my father's death, and it's time for me to share with you this message. 
the message came to me in a synagogue in Prescott. I was sitting in a sanctuary trying to grasp the reality of my father's death. I was deep in grief, not knowing how I would make it through the day. And I opened a prayer book. I just randomly opened it. And when I opened the prayer book, I noticed it was somewhere in the middle of a book of 500 plus pages. And I looked at the page and I read the words. And that was the first and the last page I read that day because I found what I was looking for. And perhaps by listening to the words of what I read, you may find what you're looking for when it comes to some unspoken words that for some of you, you never got to say. It is a poem by Merritt Malo. And it's in our Jewish prayer book and can be found in prayer books throughout the world. And here are the words that told me exactly what I need to do. And perhaps it'll speak with you. The name of the poem is When I Die. When I die, give what's left of me away to children and old men who wait to die. And if you need to cry, cry for your brother walking the street beside you. And when you need me, perch your arms around me. When you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give me. I want to leave you something, something better than words or sounds. Look for me in the people I've known and the people who I've loved. And if you cannot give me away, at least let me live in your eyes and not your mind. You can love me most by letting hands touch hands and by letting bodies touch bodies and by letting go of children who need to be free. And always remember, love never dies. Only people do. So when all that's left of me is love, please give me away. When I read that poem, I knew what I needed to do to honor my father and to move forward in my life. Once you forgive, a transformation will take place and you will become a teacher rather than a victim. You will teach others by example once you have forgiven how to live a life emotionally free from the past. You will be an example for everyone you meet and everyone you talk to. This will be a lasting contribution to the world.
this will be part of your legacy. And you will make God very, very happy. I leave you with these words. It is not the past that defines who you are. It's what you do about it going forward. And what remarkable words by Rob Corbin. And again, a remarkable speech on forgiveness after losing his father in 2008, given at the Temple Beth Shalom in Sun City, Arizona. Your forgiveness stories, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And again, forgiveness is not forgetting. It is not condoning. And it doesn't require acceptance. It's complete the moment you do it. And once you forgive, he said, a transformation will take place. You will become a teacher and not a victim. Rob Corbin's story, his father's story in a way, here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories, and today we bring you the story of Henny Jewelers, a fourth generation family owned jewelry shop with a heck of a story in Pittsburgh, PA. The story of Henny Jewelers began in 1887 by my great grandfather, Rudolph Joseph Henny who was a watchmaker by trade, and he decided to start his own business. So he bought a building in the east end of Pittsburgh with a $5 down payment, and he and his wife moved upstairs and then operated the business down below, and there they serviced railroad pocket watches for the railroad right around the corner and began to sell jewelry, um, engagement rings, wedding bands, and did just about any type of service that could be done. He continued to operate that business into the early 1900s. His son, his only child, was born above the store in 1899. Rudolph Gerard Henny, or Jerry, was the next generation to come into the family business. And he carried that business through the Great Depression, which we actually have the original accounting ledger from the 1920s and 1930s. The Great Depression saw Henny Jewelers' sales drop 72% from 1926 to 1934. Despite the toll that the Great Depression took on the Hennies, they still managed to make it through with a little thriftiness and ingenuity. They were true entrepreneurs because back then, while sales were declining, they actually tripled their marketing budget. I think also being able to have the store fully paid for so they really didn't have rent. And at that time, uh, they still may have been living above the store. At least one of the generations was. Uh, so they were able to get through the Great Depression and, and carry on the business. 
Eventually, the business was passed on to my father. So during the 1960s, the area where the store was located in the east end of Pittsburgh, they did some urban development that changed things, which significantly uh, declined the commercial viability of the area, and we saw crime go up. And my dad, finally in the 1970s, 1978, decided to move the store. It was a very difficult move because they had been in the previous location for 91 years. It was the store where my grandfather, his father, was actually born, and it was a real change, uh, a real risk for him. But it turned out to be uh, a great move, and he continued to operate that uh, to the 1990s. I came in the business in 1992. My dad was very sincere when he mentioned to me about the opportunity to come into the business. There was no pressure. That he really felt it was a business that he enjoyed, but every one of us should choose something that we really enjoy and love. I had my own desire to come into the business. I saw my dad, uh, I saw what he got to do. I started working in the business when I was 12 and I would come in and run the vacuum and clean toilets and wrap packages. We used to actually make our own bows in the basement. There was a little machine that you would twist these bows up and I, I would sit there for hours and make bows. And you know, frankly, uh, my dad is one of my heroes and if I could be like him, that would be a, a very successful life. Uh, so I had a desire to come in and do what he did. When I joined the business, we were doing less than 2% bridal engagement rings and wedding bands, and now it accounts for about 35% of our business. And frankly, it's some of the most exciting things that we get to do. It's really fun for me to get to meet these young couples who are planning the next stage of life, planning to get engaged and then get married. And some of them I've gotten to see through it. Now in my 26 years in the business, I now get to see uh, the children who are graduated from high school and college when I sold the original engagement ring and wedding band years ago. My Christian faith is uh, very important to me. This goes all the way back to my great-grandfather. In fact, right now on the credenza behind me is a little trowel that was given to my great-grandfather in recognition of his help to lay the cornerstone in the new church that was built down the street, Sacred Heart Catholic Church, which coincidentally is uh, where my sister was married and where my grandparents, they were the very first couple married in that church. My faith has played an important part in how we operate the business and what we do here. It was discouraging to see young couples getting engaged and getting married and, and seeing the love that they have for each other and then encountering them five or seven or ten years later when they're coming back to sell the engagement ring and wedding bands because things didn't work out uh, so well. Marriage and relationships can be challenging and sometimes people don't prepare uh, as well as they might need to. As my dad said often, uh, he and my mother counsel young couples through their church as they prepare for marriage and he was getting the impression that many of the young couples today were more interested in preparing for the wedding ceremony than for the relationship. And so we developed a program we call the To Have and To Hold program where we give a financial incentive to couples to seek pre-marriage counseling through their synagogue, their church, through any type of uh, counselor. 
and we will give them a discount on their wedding bands if they show us that they have received pre-marriage counseling. In addition to that, we do give out a book to every couple who comes in to look at an engagement ring. It is uh, written by Gary Chapman, who is pretty famous for a book he wrote called The Five Love Languages. And this book is The Things I Wish I Knew Before I Got Married. And it's a great practical guide to help prepare young couples for getting married. And we have given it to thousands of couples now. And some of them have come back and told us what an impact it's had and how helpful it was. I know that many have taken it and read it and given it to their friends to read as they prepare for marriage. I generally tell people that I have never had an innovative thought, that I'm really good at paying attention to what other people do and picking out what uh, has been successful in trying to emulate it, uh, maybe tweak it. Uh, But that was one that we did come up with on our own through a leaders collaborative that I went through about 11 years ago. And at the end of this leaders collaborative, they asked everyone to come up with a breakthrough goal where they in their position, wherever they are, could have an impact on the world. And I thought to myself, what in the world is a a little dinky retail jeweler going to do to have an impact on the world? How can I really impact our community? How can a jewelry store really do something that would have a meaningful impact. At that exact time, a very close friend of mine from college um, was going through a real challenge in his marriage. And that's what gave me the inspiration to see if there was a way that we could use our unique position uh, in dealing with couples as they're preparing for marriage to help them better prepare for marriage. Because it is neat, when you are selling an engagement ring, you tend to hear their story. You get connected to these couples and you get to know them in a way that most people in a retail environment don't get to know people. And we felt that through that, we might be able to speak into their lives and give them some resources that could be beneficial and helpful. Uh, And so that's our desire. Our hope is that there are marriages that are slightly better than they would have been if they hadn't read the book or done the pre-marriage counseling. And maybe we're really even making an impact that there are marriages that are saved that wouldn't have been because of the resources that we've given them. I have four boys, the oldest is 16, down to 10, and they have all worked in the business in minor ways. And uh, one of them has come in and actually uh, gets behind the sales counter and is really quite good at it. We will see if any of them do choose to come in the business. Just like my father said to me, I intend to say to them, that it is an opportunity, a means to make a living and provide for your family if you're interested. It's frankly one that I enjoy tremendously, Uh, but there's no obligation to come into this business. There's no tradition that needs to be carried on and they should pursue their dreams and do whatever uh, they feel called to and to do something that they really enjoy. That's certainly one of the things that I I feel strongly about and I talk to our team. We have a, a staff of about 30 here that we spend too much time at work. In fact, we oftentimes spend more time at work than we do with our families. So we should find something that we really enjoy. And I like to say, you should enjoy what you do. You should uh, like what you do 60 to 80% of the time. I'm well aware that there are bad days and not all things go smoothly and easily. There are times that you're not gonna love what happened that day. But for the most part, you should be excited to go to work and enjoy what you're doing. And thanks to Robbie for his work on that piece. And by the way, Robbie and his fiance, well, they're about to get married. And they went to Henny's to buy their wedding bands. 
and John looked after them. He sat down with them. He walked them through their options. He even had her ring cleaned and resized. He didn't have to do that. It's just what he does. And by the way, if you have a story about a local-owned business, send it to us at ouramericannetwork.org because these business owners, they're the lifeblood of a town. I mean, imagine he said he had 30 on staff, and 30 on staff means he's probably taking care of 100-plus people if you count their family, spouses, kids, etc. And this is what small business owners do. They're the lifeblood of a town, and it's very much what Tocqueville observed about this country, the French social scientist who came here in the 19th century. And what he observed was, well, something unique to America. All these associations, all these churches, all these small businesses, Americans just gathered together in solving problems and taking care of business. Indeed, he believed that the lifeblood of a democracy, the lifeblood of a democracy, were these small associations. And so thanks to John Henney for doing all the things he does, a family serving Pittsburgh for many, many, many decades. John Henney's story, his family's story, a Pittsburgh story here on Our American Stories.